Well, hello. And long time, no see. How about it? It has been probably more than two years since the vast majority of you have seen my face in person. And I don't know when the next time will be that you do see my face. Uh, some of that, of course, is due to the pandemic and COVID. Uh, some of it's due to just changes in my orientation and schedule. You know how it went down. Um, March 2020, we found out about this virus that was spreading the COVID. And at that point uh, came quarantines and we huddled in and I didn't move around until uh, June, July, really. I've been doing fill-in at the Spring of Hope congregation in Altoona. And so if, if you have missed me, and I hope that you have, uh, it's, it's nothing personal. I'll just tell you that, that personally for me, I didn't even get to my daughter's house in Baltimore from uh, February of 2020 until just recently in November. And so it's not that I don't love you. It's not that just please uh, be, be full of grace and know that if, if you miss me, that's a great thing. And I miss you too. And I love you. Anyway, uh, here we are again at the at the cusp, if you will, the beginning of a new year. And again, to start this new year, the brethren in Christ, we as a family, are calling one another to a week of prayer and fasting, a time to humble ourselves, seek the face of God, and say, Lord, we're nothing without you, and we want your direction. And so where do you want to take us in 2022? What do you want to do? And it seems good to us and the Holy Spirit to focus on one of the priorities in our Project 250, if you haven't heard about Project 250, that's simply a, a structure that we've put together with a couple of goals that we would like to see accomplished uh, by the time we get to the 250th anniversary of the Brother in Christ Church. And so we're just a couple of years away from that. And one of those goals is we want to see disciples. Uh, we want to see disciples increased. And in particular, if I look at the goal, the goal is making lifelong disciples and that's, that's going to be one of our priorities. And within that priority for this year of 2022, specifically the theme is choosing to be countercultural. Um, we want to engage in a deeper faith by recognizing that we don't go along with and flow with culture because culture, apart from God, is not healthy, not good. But we want to focus on what God calls us to of being a peculiar people who actually um, react in a countercultural way and think differently. So when I think about that, choosing to be countercultural and engaging in a deeper faith, what has come to my mind as I've prayed and pondered is this passage from Luke chapter 14, verses 25 and 33, where it says, Now large crowds were going along with him. And he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you? When he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it. 
Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. I am convinced that death to self is at the core of discipleship. And that, dying to self, is the most countercultural thing a believer can do. In a world that's polarized by a vast array of dividing lines, Jesus calls us, you and me, into unity in himself. His words, as I read them there from the Gospel of Luke, are radical, extreme, demanding, and dogmatic. My Bible says in red letters, unless I hate my closest human contacts and connections, even myself, I cannot be his disciple. Further, unless I take up my cross, in other words, live like a dead man, I cannot be his disciple. And unless I give up all my possessions, I cannot be his disciple. Yikes. I mean, that, I, I said that's radical, that's extreme. Imagine Jesus saying to us, to you and me, you have to hate even yourself, your parents, your brothers and sisters. You have to take up your cross and essentially die, in effect, to yourself. And you have to give everything up. It, it becomes meaningless. And if you don't, you can't be my disciple. Using the hermeneutic of the paradox, and if you're not familiar with that, I, I think I made that up. Uh, I haven't found it in any textbooks. I haven't heard any professors or teachers use it. But some years ago, I decided as I read the scriptures, what I see there is what I call the hermeneutic of the paradox. In other words, you have to read the scripture in its entirety because if you just pick out verses here or verses there, often they seem contradictory. And such is the case here. And using the hermeneutic of the paradox, Let's take a look together at the opposite end of the spectrum, the, the tension, uh, and hold the, the two ends together in that tension for clarity. And it, it looks like this. Jesus cannot mean by hating myself that I need to loathe myself or despise myself. He cannot mean that I have to loathe my parents or my brothers and sisters or that we have to despise one another because he teaches the exact opposite in other places. There are other scriptures that teach us that uh, I must love others. I must respect my parents. I must love you. You must love me. And if we, if we keep going, he also says that I must become... Um, I must keep my personality. I must not become a zombie. He doesn't want me to be like walking dead without a, a free will or making choices. It's my creativity, I think, that God enjoys. And, and so Jesus doesn't mean that when he says that we have to die to self. He, and he doesn't mean that I'm, I'm forbidden to have any possessions because his disciples have things. Peter continued to have a house and boats, and uh, so it goes. But... Jesus is saying that anyone who gives up earthly things for his sake 
That's, that's what you do to be his disciple. And even then, if you do that, he'll still uh, replenish. It says that in other places, you'll not fail to receive a bunch in this life and in the life to come. But a true disciple is marked by putting God first ahead of all that, ahead of every relationship, ahead of every uh, piece of equipment or material life. Everything else is secondary to Jesus. And the Apostle Paul said it this way, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So what does that life look like for a follower, for a disciple, for someone who's dead to self and alive in Christ? And to answer, the, answer that question, at least somewhat, you know, I, I can only speak in part a few things. That's all I have time for uh, in this message. But what does that look like? And to answer that question somewhat, I want to look at the disciples themselves, at, at least a few of them, and some of the original 12. First, I think it means that I accept my position in life and just serve in whatever position I'm in as unto the Lord. Not serving myself, not serving men, but serving the Lord. And I'm going to use James and John for this example, because those two guys came to Jesus and asked for the seats of honor. Let one of us sit on your right hand and the other, hand, the other on your left hand. The others, when they found out, they were indignant about that. But Jesus' answer to them was, that's not for me to decide. But I'll tell you this. Whoever wants to be my disciple needs to first be a servant. If you want to become great in my kingdom, become a servant. And he said that he himself did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He had all the authority, and this is how he chose to exercise it. By using that authority and the power that was in him uh, as God himself, he he lived a life of, let me do what's best for you. Let me leave heaven. Let me come to earth. Uh, let me die. I mean, he, he didn't lead by sticking a wet finger in the air and saying, hey, let's everybody flow with whatever the, the current climate is. He was on a mission, and that mission was to redeem humanity. Um, so on the one hand, he didn't just waffle or blow with the wind. And on the other hand, he didn't use his authority and power to take advantage of his followers in some kind of self-serving fashion. In our world, where we are constantly uh, fighting against the sin nature or the worldly nature, a world that promotes self-seeking, power, recognition, independence, dominance, and actually being served we follow Jesus, and Jesus' approach is countercultural. Second, dying to self, I think, means that I subordinate my personal agenda, all of my personal agendas, to the lordship of Jesus Christ and his authority. Uh, amongst the disciples, Matthew, we know, was a tax collector. Simon was a zealot. If you know about these affiliations and agendas. Uh, Zealot was someone who was just pro-national Israel, make Israel great again, and uh, they created all sorts of disruptions and undermining of the, you know, occupying Roman army. Uh, and zealots hated tax collectors. A lot of Israelites hated tax collectors because tax collectors 
were considered to be selfish traitors. And tax collectors very often um, robbed the people in a way because Rome let them keep as much as they could extract from the taxpayers. And so tax collectors were generally despised, but especially despised by zealots. Tax collectors, on the other hand, despised zealots because zealots made trouble. Tax collectors thought we needed to live in a calm, quiet, peaceable world, and uh, we don't need troublemakers like these zealots. They should just sit down, be quiet, and get along. Uh, another famous zealot in the scripture was Barabbas, the man who was uh, in prison for insurrection and inciting a riot and so forth, and he was exchanged for Jesus in, in Pilate's offer of releasing a prisoner. On the opposite side, another famous tax collector was Zacchaeus. And in fact, Zacchaeus was more than just a regular tax collector. He was a chief tax collector. The point being, regardless of whatever your earthly orientation is or your views, how you in, uh, view your citizenship in whatever nation or your national allegiance is or most any other kind of context where we have an agenda, the person on the opposite end of the spectrum from you is just as welcome as you in Jesus's kingdom. So if you lean left or lean right or whatever it happens to be, I just want you to know that Jesus says the most important thing is me, himself. And you need to set all that other stuff aside. And if we are able to identify that way with Jesus' kingdom, we're going to be counter-cultural because our culture wants us to get wrapped up in the drama of our current politics and other things. And Jesus says, let that stuff go. You belong to me. You're part of my kingdom. Make that your focus. Number three, dying to self means I remove my planks before pulling splinters. Judas Iscariot was a thief. That's what the scriptures say. Jesus made Judas Iscariot the thief, the treasurer amongst his group. Just stop and ponder that for a second. The all-knowing, almighty God in the flesh knew Judas, knew his heart from the inside out, and took the thief and appointed him as treasurer. And so Judas uh, kept the money bags, and treasurer Judas was appalled beside himself when Mary poured expensive perfume on Jesus' feet. He protested on behalf of the poor. This could have been sold and the, and the money given to the poor, but the commentary in John's Gospel says he only said this because he kept the money bag and helped himself to it, and so his motive wasn't pure. He... he he saw a loss. Mary's pouring out this expensive perfume, and that could have been money in the bag, money that I could have used. On the other hand, another disciple named Nathaniel, Jesus describes him as pure, no guile, a true son of Abraham. Now picture that, these, Jesus picking these disciples, calling them together, and they are just polar op opposites in character. According to Jesus's Discernment, uh, Nathaniel was honest and sincere, and I'm sure because of that, Nathaniel could not fathom, in fact, we know from Scripture, he just had a difficult time believing that the Messiah came from Nazareth. He said, does anything good come from Nazareth? And in other ways, at other times, you get this feeling from Nathaniel that... Um, he probably was not feeling very good about Judas being in the role of treasurer. 
And I think Jesus intentionally, by pairing folks up like this and, and making Judas Iscariot the treasure, I think he's trying to say, get over your fascination with the material universe. Does money or neighborhood actually matter to a dead man? Why can't the Messiah come from Nazareth? Why does the, the treasurer, or why can't the treasurer be a thief? Well, yeah, I, I get it. You know, I'm the bishop. No, I don't want local congregations picking thieves intentionally as treasurers just because Jesus did it. Their thing that Jesus did, that Jesus did. Let's let it go at that. Uh, and we'll keep on with looking for folks of Nathaniel's character to be our treasures. But I do think Jesus was making a point that we need to get over our preoccupation with this, this material, short-lived universe that we're part of. And so uh, I'd like to say in general, dear advertiser, I really don't need what you're trying to sell me. Jesus is enough. I don't feel like I'm missing out on something. Living by faith, contentment, just knowing that Jesus knows me. If we live that lifestyle, we're countercultural. Last point. At least last point for this message. Certainly not the last of ways that we could um, dissect, exegete, talk about what it means to live as a true disciple and, and dying to self. But for me, the, the last point today is that dying to self does not mean losing my individual identity, but it does mean losing my identity as an individual. Allow me to say that one more time. That's a, that's a mouthful, and I want to make sure that it comes across clearly. Dying to self does not mean losing my individual identity but it does mean losing my identity as an individual. The disciples uh, that I've chosen to juxtapose are Peter and Thomas. When we read the Gospels and find Peter being described and his behaviors, we see an impetuous, shoot-first, action-minded, self-confident guy. He was passionate, there's no doubt. He didn't hesitate to tell God no on multiple occasions. He was the only disciple to get out of the boat and walk on water. He was willing to fight first, and he wound up slashing a guy and cutting off his ear. He was a strong fisherman. If you've ever tried to haul 150-some fish in a net up the beach, you'll be, you know, get an understanding of just exactly how strong this guy must have been. Uh, and he swore. There's a, a place where he's calling down curses and, and uh, cursing, and he faltered at times. That was one of those occasions, and he wept bitterly. So contrast that with Thomas, who we see, he, he's more like Eeyore the donkey in Winnie the Pooh. He's gloomy and pessimistic and just slow to respond. Um, he struggled with doubts and questions. But you know the two of them? Both Peter and Thomas were people of action. When Jesus was headed to Bethany, uh, John chapter 11, they know that they're being hunted. They're, they're under a death sentence. And Thomas's response was, let's go and die with him. That says a lot. 
There were multitudes that had followed Jesus uh, across his time of ministry, and the vast majority of them had left. And a true disciple has already died to self. And I think that's where Thomas was. And Thomas says, let's go. We might as well go up and die with him. And Thomas was willing to voice his questions and hesitations and speak up. Um, you know, unless I see the, the holes in his hands and the hole in his side, I'm not going to believe. Uh, Jesus says, you know where I'm going. Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. Tell us where you're going. So although they were vastly different personalities, Jesus met the deep the deepest needs of both of those disciples where they were at. And they both believed. And you and I, we need to accept who we are and how we're wired. And we must accept that not everybody is alike. Not everyone is like me. Not everyone is like you. Even in that, then, we have to join ourselves together in love as fellow servants because all of us need Jesus. And we need to love Jesus. We're all members of the body of Christ first. And in a culture that celebrates individualism, that celebrates this freedom from accountability, nobody tells me what to do. I'm going to do what I Look at my expression. I'm, you, nope. Jesus said, look like me. Follow me. Learn, learn what it is to look like me. And it's not going to be in the outward appearance. It will be somewhat. There are, there are things that we need to respect and abide by together. Uh, and we need to walk in accountability. But in this culture that wants to throw off all restraint, unity under the Lord Jesus Christ is countercultural. Okay, as I said, I've only scratched the surface today, and I'm going to wrap up exactly where I began. I'm convinced that there is nothing more countercultural the most countercultural thing that we can do is die to self. Broader cultural uh, appeals to the mortal passions of the flesh and selfish, selfishness, fear, anger, greed, lust, pride, deceit, etc. But as participants in Christ, members of the kingdom of God, the counterculture, that we're part of replaces all that with eternal spiritual attributes like selflessness, contentment, peace, faith, hope, humility, honesty, unity in Christ. And so I pray that uh, God will bless us in this upcoming year of 2022 and bless us in a way that our family of faith experiences growth. And by growth, I mean more of Jesus and less of us. I'm glad to be your bishop. Thanks for being a part of the body, and uh, thanks for listening today. And now let me pray that blessing on us, and we'll be done. Father, thank you for your church, your bride, your flock, your vineyard, all the metaphors. Thank you for the body of Christ. And thank you for your faithfulness and who you are and all that your character is. And I thank you that you are life. You are breath within us. You are our hope. You, oh God, help us to take up our cross, get ourselves out of the way, 
to join ourselves together with one another in you in the way that you've designed and desired. And I do ask that uh, this year in the Allegheny Conference, in the Brethren in Christ Church, and in the church around the globe, that you would advance your kingdom, that Jesus would shine brighter, and that you would continue to do a mighty work bringing people to yourself and teaching us how to worship in spirit and in truth. We rest on you, we trust in you, and may you guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus, and may we walk in perfect peace in his name. And it is in his name, Jesus, that we pray and even dare approach you. Thank you for all that you're about to do. Amen.